And you all hear me first of all. I wasn't going to put two pairs of glasses on it. There was a guy, there was a, there was a preacher on TV who used to do that, wear two glasses. I don't know how he did it, but uh, it was crazy as it was. But anyway. <sighs> Isaiah 61, please. Now tonight we're going to read the first three verses and then focus our attention on verse 1. So you might think that's not too long. We shall see how long that takes. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Let's read down through verse 3. Then we'll pray. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach Good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of opening your word, and now we pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person here to gain understanding to gain your wisdom to know Lord God how much you care and you love your people how much you desire to heal broken hearts and console those who mourn and replace those things with praise, with beauty, with joy. Our Father, help us to stay focused and attentive to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. There is a little saying that I learned a long time ago, teaching, teaching and explaining the complementary nature of the Old and New Testaments. And that little statement is, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. The other night, uh, Pastor Darrell in his teaching uh, used a very similar uh, little saying, but it's a saying to remind us of, of how the Old and New Testament work uh, in concert together. They don't contradict, they complement. And one of the unique and distinguishing characteristics of the book of Isaiah is that it is quoted in the New Testament far more than any other Old Testament book. We find that Isaiah himself, the person of Isaiah, is mentioned 21 times by name. And chapter 53 alone is quoted or alluded to at least 85 times. In all of the New Testament. That's a lot. So we see this 
complementary nature of, of the Old and New Testament, especially between Isaiah and the New Testament. In fact, Jesus quoted from Isaiah, the Gospels referring to the prophet nine times. But one of the most notable and significant quotes is from Isaiah 61, this very chapter that we're going to begin studying tonight. Some of the passage that we just read, as a matter of fact, it is notable for what the Lord quoted, but especially for what He did not quote. I want you to keep your eyes here in Isaiah, in your Bibles, looking at verses 1 and 2. And I want you to let me read from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. You keep your eyes on Isaiah, and I'll read from Luke. It says in verse 16, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. The strange thing to some people, I'll let the search committee uh, finish so that y'all can focus on me. The strange thing to some people is that Jesus stopped quoting in the middle of a verse. He stopped after saying to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he passed over saying, and the day of vengeance of our God. Didn't read that, that day in the synagogue. He didn't read it. But we are told why in the next verse. And that is of Luke 4, verse 21. In four, uh, Luke 4, 21, he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Where he stopped reading, he said, Today, you see, today. This scripture is fulfilled. The Lord Jesus identified himself as the person being described by Isaiah. He says, what I'm reading here, that's me. I'm fulfilling this today. This now. And so his, his coming to earth when he did... As Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when, 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 when the Lord came to earth when He did, and specifically His public ministry, was the fulfillment of the verse up to the words that He quoted. It was indeed the acceptable year of the Lord when the brokenhearted and the bound and the blind could be restored and released from their burdens in response 
to his message as Christ went about preaching the gospel. As he preached, people responded. As he preached, he preached with the authority given to him by God, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. That's exactly what this passage is saying. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach and to heal the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to set at liberty those that are bound. That's the acceptable year of the Lord when, when those brokenhearted, bound and blind, could be restored, could be released from their burdens because they have now responded to this preaching of Christ. And because of the Lord's presence, you see, because of His very presence, it was the acceptable year of the Lord. But the Lord Himself was not accepted by the vast majority of people. In fact, He was officially rejected by the Jews. And He was crucified by the Romans. He, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Word of God specifically states that one day He will return to earth a second time. It is then... In His second coming, that He will fulfill the remainder of the verse in Isaiah. And the day of vengeance of our God. Not in the first coming, but in the second coming. And, and we have some, some verses in Isaiah that remind us of that. When thinking of the day to come for, for, for the Messiah to restore Israel. Isaiah 34, verse 8, for example, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Zion being, of course, Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 4, says, Say to those who are fearful-hearted, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Speaking of what time? The full restoration of Israel. In Isaiah 63, verse 4, For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. So we know that with what purpose He came the first time, when He said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And He says, today this is fulfilled. And that is that very statement that he, where He stopped. Proclaiming that day. We know what the purpose is. We know why He came the first time. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. What is the world? The world made up of what? Made up of the Jews and the Gentiles. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All being who? Jews and Gentiles. When it comes right down to it, there are only two distinctions, two divisions of people. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. And God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 56, Jesus Himself says, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We know what the purpose of His first coming was. It wasn't to come and to destroy. It wasn't to come and to condemn. It was to come and to save. 
But when Jesus does come again, He will come in judgment upon those who refuse His offer of salvation. As we will see in detail in chapter 63 of Isaiah. And so we're still living in the acceptable year of the Lord. And and we need to understand that. We're still living in the acceptable year of the Lord. Why do we know that? Because Jesus hasn't come again. He hasn't come the second time. This is, we're living in the day of grace. We're living in the day where the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be proclaimed. It is to be preached. It is to be shouted from the housetops that Jesus Christ is the answer. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And we need to respond to that offer of salvation. Come to me and drink. Come to me and I will give you rest. People must still accept those. See, this is what we have to understand about the acceptable year of the Lord. People must still accept or reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Hopefully all of you here tonight have accepted the good news. And I would have to almost think that, you know, a group of people like us here tonight, being here on a Wednesday night... Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty much gives me a, an indication that most of you, if not all of you, have accepted the good news. I hope, and if you haven't, you do it tonight. So people must still accept or reject the good news of Jesus Christ in response to the preaching of the gospel, which Isaiah calls good tidings, glad tidings, which also means to gladden with good news. I, you know, I, I come preaching, in other words, I come preaching to gladden you with good news. To make you glad. There's someone who can heal your broken heart. There's someone who can set you free from what is capt- you know, that, that has captured you and, and bound you from that freedom that is in, in Christ and in God. I want to gladden you with the good news that someone has come. To set at liberty those captives, bound by sin and death. And what is interesting is that the background of this passage, the background of this passage that we're looking at tonight, the acceptable year of the Lord, is the year of Jubilee. It is the year of Jubilee, which we find in the book of Leviticus. So I'd like to have you turn to Leviticus chapter 25, verses 8 through 12. Now, you would want to read all of Leviticus 25. Because of time, I just want to read a portion of it. Then I'll explain most of what else is there. But in Leviticus 25, verse 8, it says, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years. So seven sevens of years, which equals to 49 years. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. See, I didn't even have to tell you. It was already written there. And then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. 
In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. As you read on, you discover that during that year, all debts were canceled. All land was returned to the original owners. The slaves were freed. And everyone was given a new, fresh start, a new beginning. Don't you sometimes wish you had a fresh start about things? Just a new, fresh start. You know, you just, uh, you know, when I sometimes feel like, like we, we want to have that is on April 60. Just a new, fresh start. In life, you know, kind of like saying on, on April 16th, they should just abolish the IRS. I mean, just, you know, let's just go, let's just start all over the whole country. Let's do it. Well, you know, it's interesting, but <laughs> this is how the Lord, by the way, this is how when you when you read this and study this whole year of Jubilee, this is how the Lord balanced the economy and kept the rich from exploiting the poor. And I tell you what, maybe nations, and especially ours, should take note of this. This is God's balancing of the economy. And it works if we do our part. It works if we're obedient to God in doing these things. But you see, when a person trusts in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, they are now living in a spiritual year of jubilee. Each and every one of us, each and every one of you that has received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are to be living right now in a spiritual year of Jubilee. I mean, those who have, they've been set free from bondage. Their spiritual debt to the Lord has been paid. They're now living in the acceptable year of the Lord. And instead of ashes of of mourning, there's a crown for their head. Royalty, anointing, and the garment of righteousness is something that we see throughout this particular passage, especially verse 3 and verse 10. And we'll get there in just a minute. But in Revelation chapter 1, which kind of anticipated me there, but in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, in verse 6 it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us kings and priests in his kingdom. With with that comes the markings of, of kings and priests. What you do have to remember is, Later on in the book of Revelation, it tells us that those who had crowns cast them at the feet of Jesus. So you'll have it on your head for a little while. Because you certainly aren't going to want to wear your crown while there's one wearing a crown that's a lot bigger than you. You're going to cast your crown at the feet of Jesus. And you give him all the praise and honor and glory for what he did in bringing us to this acceptable year of the Lord for us. So you'll notice in Isaiah 61 verse 3, it says, To console those who mourn in Zion... To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees 
of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. Trees of righteousness that are, that are fruitful, that are blossoming, that are great and that are strong and that are well rooted in the ground. Trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. If the Lord's going to plant us as trees, you can be sure that we're going to grow. You can be sure that there's going to be a covering of righteousness. You can be sure of these things because God is doing the planting. God is doing the watering. God is doing everything to show His glory in and through us. In verse 10 it says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So you're seeing all of this adornment and all of this beauty and all of this anointing as it were. You know, it is amazing how the Lord loves and He cares for His people Israel. I mean, we today can already say, you know, the Lord has already blessed us with spiritual, just great treasures of spiritual blessings in Christ. There, you know, reserved for us in heaven. But, but we're blessed with that. We, you know, we don't have to wear the crown to know that he is, he is our crown. Jesus is our crown. Jesus is our robe of righteousness. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. Jesus is our belt of truth. You know, Jesus is all these things to us. But for Israel, and we can't forget them, you see. Lord, the Lord loves and cares for His people Israel. These promises are for them as well. For in her days of rebellion, you see. Think about this. Go back all the way to their days of rebellion. Israel was like an oak tree or a terebinth tree, as we'll see, that was fading and, and, a, and a waterless garden. That, that's what God likened them as. A fading oak or a fading terebinth tree and a, and a waterless garden. Now, you know, if we all have gardens and, and we have no water, you might as well call it something else. Or it's just a garden of dirt. Or a garden of weeds. Or a garden of rocks. But when you add water and care to that patch of land, it becomes a garden. Israel was a waterless garden. Isaiah 1 verse 30, going all the way back to the first chapter. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. As long as Israel continued to be rebellious toward their God, they were like waterless gardens. That doesn't sound too refreshing. But in the kingdom of her God, she will be like a watered garden because we've already read in Isaiah 58 verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones, you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. What a contrast, you see. Rebellious Israel chose to look away from God, chose to walk away from God, chose to want to figure things out and do things out for themselves. And God has to chastise them. God has to take them through, through times of captivity, times of slavery by other nations for them to wake up to this and all along God is saying I have a promise for you I want to water you I want you to be a garden full of trees I want you to be a, a just a you know a, a garden full of, of fruit and I'll have to do it 
We can't do it ourselves. Israel could not do it itself. And this seems to press the issue I've brought up many times, how the Lord could chastise His people without the opportunity for restoration. There are some people today who say Israel is lost. They're, they're, they've lost their opportunity now. They can't, they, they, they're not restored. There really isn't a nation of Israel over there in the Middle East today. Oh, there may be Jews there, and, and, but uh, they're, they're not, you know, God doesn't care for them anymore. And I say that's a lie. Because God's word doesn't fail. God's word is always true. God is not going to leave his people without the opportunity for restoration. God forbid that he would judge them so harshly and then replace their prospective blessings just toward the church. God forbid that, God, that he himself would do that. He would forbid it himself because that's not his nature. About his own people. And so, one little phrase, that's all we spend time on tonight. One little phrase. The acceptable year of the Lord. And see where it has brought us tonight. Let's go back now and start filling in the gaps. Let's go back to verse 1. There's actually more gaps to fill in this particular verse of Scripture. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We oftentimes wonder why Jesus mentions to open the eyes of the blind. But it's almost obvious that anyone in captivity or in prison never really saw the light of day until they were brought out of their prison cell. We immediately find a hint of the doctrine of the Trinity in this Old Testament passage. I want you to notice there is the Lord God. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. There is the Lord God or Sovereign Lord who corresponds to the person of the Father. And then there is the Spirit of the Lord God who is obviously the Holy Spirit. And the me, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, refers to the subject, the Anointed One. The Messiah, that is what Messiah means. The Messiah, the word Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one. Comes from the word Masach, which means to anoint. Which is one of the words that is used here. Because the Lord has anointed me. Mashach. He has anointed me. He has poured out His oil upon me. Therefore, the Messiah is the Mashiach. He is the anointed one. In essence, he is announcing that he is anointed, blessed, and empowered by the Spirit of the Lord God. And this anointing has qualified him for preaching and for ministry. Because ministry requires anointing. Any kind of ministry requires anointing. Now, I'm going to use the word anointing a little bit more than uh, we're normally used to hearing. Unless we get to a point where we 
preach it or teach with it. And the word here is very important for us. But I, I'm saying this because I know that sometimes you've heard, you've heard other preachers talk about the anointing. And, and they go on and on about anointing. But they're usually talking about the anointing they have. You know, to be able to do what they're doing. So that people can, you know, get saved and get healed and all kinds of stuff. You know. But, you know, what's interesting about the anointing on the church is that it's not upon just certain individuals. It's upon the church. It's upon you. I'll get that uh, there in just a moment. I just don't want to get ahead of myself. So the point is, so you understand why we're using this word so much. Ministry requires anointing. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Samuel had gone to the house of Jesse because the Lord had sent him there to find the next king to replace Saul, who was, you know, he was lost his anointing, as it were. Lost his kingship. And then, uh, so Samuel gets this whole parade of sons of, of, of Jesse, but there's one missing, you know, and he says, do you have any more? Because he gets to look at these guys, they all look great, but the Lord tells him, don't look at the outside, look at the heart. And he says, well, there's got to be somebody else. And he says, well, there is one more. That's uh, David, he's my son, my young son. He's, you know, he's the least of these, so he's out in the field watching the sheep. He says, bring him here. And as soon as David comes in, Saul, uh, Samuel, I should say, knows exactly that this is the one that God has chosen. And it tells us in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 16, Then Samuel took the horn of oil. By the way, the horn is, is you know, not a trumpet or a trombone or a French horn. Uh, it's, it's, it's the ram's horn. It, it was something that came from an animal that God made. So it was something that was God made, God shaped. And, and that is uh, in contrast to the flask of oil that was used to anoint Saul before David. Which is an interesting Contrast, because the flask is made by man. And what was the problem with Israel? They kept crying out to God, give us a king, give us a king like the other nations. And God was their king. But they were refusing God to be their king, so finally God gives them Saul. But when Saul was anointed, he was anointed with a flask made by man. So it gives you an indication of where that was going. David was anointed with a, with a horn of oil. And the oil representing the Holy Spirit was poured upon David. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. That must have been great for the brothers. That little snotty kid. Uh, beat him up, you know. I've, you know, we, we've all had, you know, if you had older brothers, you know, they didn't like you. So that's a kind of an interesting, in the midst of their brothers, he was anointed. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, so Samuel arose and went on to Ramah. But you get the picture. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. Now, in 1 Kings 1, verse 39, we're given the account of Solomon being anointed. And it says, Zadok the, the priest took a horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. And they blew the horn and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. When they blew the horn, it wasn't blowing the same horn with the oil. You know, it was a, a, a shofar. So it was another horn. Just didn't want you to think they were getting you know, oil all over the place. Long live King Solomon. Well, what was it? He was being anointed as king. Ministry requires anointing. Go to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now there's no oil here, but there's something even better. In Luke 3.21, John the Baptist is baptizing. And Jesus comes upon him at the Jordan. 
And we're told in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, and this is a beautiful little connection, prayer in the Holy Spirit. While he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Two things we see there that we've already talked about. All three persons of the Trinity are there. Jesus, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove upon Jesus. And the voice of the Father that says, you're my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. That was a special anointing, wasn't it? How special that was. And what's interesting also about it is that Jesus, right before that happened, submitted to the waters of baptism, not because he had to be baptized, but to show the world that he came to die. Because baptism, in essence, is the picture of a person going into the waters of death, into the waters of the tomb of death, and coming out, being raised to newness of life. The change that occurs, going in dirty, coming out clean, going in unclean, coming out clean. You know, we're going to baptize people in a couple of Sundays. We need to realize how important this particular baptism was for each and every one of us as believers who have been baptized or will be baptized. For Jesus to do it, not for himself, but for us, should be the encouragement that we ought to follow him in obedience in these things. Well, the word anoint, as I mentioned earlier, means to rub or to sprinkle on. In some cases, just to pour on. Apply anointment or oily liquid to. The, the priests in, in the Old Testament times were often literally anointed from head to toe with oil. And they would get the most fragrant oil. They just, they just put together this, this beautiful mix of oil and, and fragrances and myrrh and frankincense, all kinds of things. Just, you know, it would be a special mixture, but they'd mix it in with the oil and it would just pour. And you could just, you know, the fragrance of it. You know, that, that's something that Paul talks about in, in, in his letters to the Corinthian church. The beauty of the fragrance of Christ. The anointing that Christ had upon him, you know, you, you, you sense the, the idea of that, of the fragrance of it, you know, the blessing of it. And so, that was a sign of the Holy Spirit upon their lives and upon their service in the tabernacle or in the temple. But it was only the outward expression. It was only the outward representation of the real, inward and spiritual manifestation and work going on within a servant of God. So baptism, when a person gets to be baptized, is baptized, you know, it's an outward expression of an inward work. We are saying with the baptism, I, you know, I am, I am just proclaiming to the world that Jesus Christ has changed my life, changed my heart. I'm a new creature in Christ. 
The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The old man is dead. A new, a new man is alive. The old woman is dead. A new woman is alive. But when it comes to this particular anointing, we are talking now about that outward representation of the inward work of the Holy Spirit in the servant of God. And we're told as Christians, and we're told that Christians who are under the new covenant have that anointing. That same anointing. Now listen, in 1 John 2.20, John talks about this anointing. He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Now I'm taking it out of context for a second. Because I'm just reading the verse. And it sounds good. You have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. That's the part everybody likes. Oh boy, we have an anointing and we know everything. No, you don't get anointed of the Holy Spirit to become a know-it-all. It's not about being a know-it-all. It's not about knowing all things as if God doesn't have to tell us anything or pastors don't have to tell us anything or counselors don't have to tell us anything. Because sometimes, you know, if, if, we, if we need to correct a person and say, you know, uh, we need to sit down, we need to talk about something that you're doing, you say, well, who are you, the Holy Spirit? You know what that, kind of, you know what that response is? It's saying that the heart's not right with God. It, said that, it says that you don't understand this anointing that is upon each and every person. So understand now, I'm taking out of context just a moment, but just to point out that John is saying to the church, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. Hold that thought. If you're, first, if you're in 1 John chapter, chapter 2, you should be in your Bibles, because this is how you're going to find out what, what that connection is. You jump down to verse 27, and it says, But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. Now, some people like that too. So, Charlie, would you shut up? Because I don't need you to be telling me anything. Because, you know, I don't need a teacher. Are you getting the picture here? We're out of context for, for just a moment. Please understand. Because there are some people who say, I don't need anyone to teach me because I'm anointed, brother. I'm anointed. Can't touch me, man. Can't touch this. Dun, da, da, da. All right? But notice what it says as you go on. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in Him. So now the context of this passage, when you read the whole passage, the context of this passage in 1 John, is the deceptive teaching of antichrists. The deceptive teachings of antichrist people. With the spirit of Antichrist. I talked about one in particular on Sunday morning. And so on our TV sets, if you want it to be, five days a week. I talked about her on Sunday. A spirit of Antichrist. And you hear this stuff going on. And John is saying, don't be deceived. You have an anointing from God. And, and you will know what you need to know. John is not saying that we don't need teachers. He's saying we don't need false teachers. That's the context. And you don't need to listen to false teachers. Because if it just meant that we don't need teachers, then that would contradict a lot of Scripture. 
For example, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So that would be a contradiction if we don't need teachers. You see, you have to look at the whole context of of 1 John chapter 2. If you jump to Hebrews chapter 5, here's a very interesting verse of scripture in verse 12 it says for though by this time you ought to be teachers now he's speaking to these jewish christians and he says by this time you ought to be teachers so so that would be contradicted if there are no teachers and the lord didn't want us to have teachers it would be a contradiction but he says for by this time you ought to be teachers you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of god and you've come to need milk and not solid food in other words you you need to be taught again So teaching is not the issue. It's what kind of teaching that they were having to deal with. And John in 1 John chapter 2 is dealing with that spirit of Antichrist. And so the anointiness of of, of the Holy Spirit in a believer in Jesus Christ is so essentially important. That we know by hearing, by, by having that discernment, Jesus, this is what I was struggling with this weekend in, in, in bringing about that message, dealing with what people are saying in, in, you know, in the church, and people are just following it, going over a cliff, as it were, just following somebody teaching false doctrine. Paul, again, in, in, in the book of Ephesians, tells us we ought not to be you know, caught up like, like the children you know, being tossed to and fro with, you know, with every kind of... Every kind of doctor blowing this way and that way. Blows this way, we go this way. No, we've got to stand up against all of that false, falseness. So at the same time, you see, the, scripture emphasize, the Scriptures emphasize that it is the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate teacher. That's another thing. It is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate teacher who helps us to understand God's Word and gives us as well the wherewithal to live it out in our lives. John 14, 26. Jesus speaks to His disciples and He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's part of the all things that goes back to 1 John uh, 2. And you shall know all things because it is the Holy Spirit that is going to give you the wisdom and the understanding and the words to be able to combat that deceptive teaching. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor even entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. The ultimate teacher is the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. In the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14, he answers a very important question to young believers in in Jesus Christ, and really to all believers. He says, These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Notice verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now that, that, that is a passage that lives for today. 
Think about this. Each and every one of us before we came to know Jesus Christ was in that very same picture. Why? Because we were all natural men. We were all in that natural state of of separation from God because of our flesh and because of sin. The natural man does not receive the Spirit or the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. We didn't understand it. We could have read some scriptures a thousand times. It didn't make any sense to us until we came to Christ. Then all of a sudden, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our, in our salvation, the presence of the Spirit, when we've called upon Him to be upon us and in us, all of a sudden, you know, our eyes are open, the light goes on, and we see things and we say, I can understand that now. But because I'm still a babe, I still need to be given milk, and then a little bit more bread, and then a little bit more meat, until we can finally be mature enough to understand. You know, and we're still understanding. I don't care how many years you've been in the Lord, we're still learning and still growing. That's the nature of God's Word, it's always learnable. And we should always be teachable. So, is there any way to pray for this anointing? Oh, you might hear a lot of teachers, you know, tell you, tell you how, you know, you need to do this or do that or go through this process or whatever. But consider a statement made by Jesus on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day, the great day of the Feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out. You have to understand the picture of what's going on. Uh, the priests... And, and, and people from the temple are, are carrying these huge, large uh, things of water, you know, these, these vessels of water. And they're bringing this water out and pouring out the water. Very symbolic of, of uh, you know, how the Lord had brought the, the children of Israel out of Egypt and, and, and there in the wilderness provided for them water when they needed water. Brought them through the Red Sea, you know, moved the water out of the way so they could get to where they were going. But water was symbolic of that particular sense and when they're doing this Jesus in the midst of this cries out and he says if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But the the important thing is, he says, if anyone thirsts, look at four words here. The key words in this passage are thirst, come, drink, and believe. If you mark anything with a highlighter, mark those four words. Thirst, come, drink, and believes. Your prayer for God's anointing needs to come from that place of being thirsty. If anyone thirsts, if you've come to the realization that you're thirsting for God, thirsting for the Word of God, thirsting for things of God, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You need to know, first of all, that you need the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Jesus Christ needs the Holy Spirit. On a daily basis, we need the Holy Spirit. And so you ask because you need if you need ask Jesus said ask and it shall be given to you seek and you shall find knock and the door shall be opened to you we we shouldn't be without the things of God he has laid them out for us to have 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so the second need to fulfill is coming, is, is, is coming to be coming to Jesus. <laughs> coming to be coming to Jesus. You come to Jesus. That's the next need. For only He has the real water of life. Because He is the real water of life. He is the water of life. You see, He is everything that we need. Peter said that, 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 that in Jesus Christ is everything we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need. If we're thirsty, He gives us water. If we're hungry, He gives us food. If we're tired and, and, and anxious, He gives us rest. If we're ignorant about certain things, He gives us wisdom. Everything that we get from Him is of Him because it is Him. Christ is wisdom. Christ is strength. Christ is rest. Christ is salvation. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And think about this. Go from Matthew all the way to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Can you all say come? <laughs> I don't want to sound like those weird guys on TV. But you know... <laughs> Can you say, come, come. You know, this is what it say. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Take the water. It's given to you. It's out there in the open. It would be ridiculous if some of you here have been all, or, or if, if any one of you here, you know, came in here without having drunk a glass of water all day long, and there's a pitcher of water right there with some glasses, and, and you're thirsty, and I say, there's water right there, take it. How much does it cost? It's already been paid for. Take it. Isn't that ridiculous? But yet we offer the gospel of Jesus Christ and people aren't coming. And they're not taking, for the most part. Yet the invitation continues to go out. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. The third thing that needs to be fulfilled is the receiving of it, you see. To drink. Drink. You can come, but you've got to drink. And fourthly, the receiving comes by believing. Thirst, come, drink, believe. Trust in the Lord with all your heart because He's faithful. By the way, Jesus didn't promise His Holy Spirit to those who would feel. He promised the Holy Spirit to those who would believe. Well, if you just feel. What did Oprah say? It's not about feeling. It's, 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 not a, it's not a believing experience. It's a feeling experience. That's contrary to the Word of God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who feels me. Can you feel me? Jesus said, He who believes in me. As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. While we've got to the next phrase, He has sent me to heal or to bind up the brokenhearted. I got to do this quick because we're only going to stop here pretty soon. 
Before there were ever sutures in medical surgery, before there were ever sutures, when a person would get a very deep cut, they would have to press the cut together and they would wrap it so tight, as tight as they could, so that the deep cut eventually would heal. That's what Jesus came to do for our broken hearts. You know, the word broken in Hebrew is the word shabar, which literally means to be maimed, crippled, wrecked, or crushed. That definition sounds a lot like what can happen to the hearts of men and women throughout history from the very beginning of time. Songs have been sung about broken hearts. We've watched stories about them. Sometimes we joke about them to no good for others. But God has a concern for broken hearts. That's why He sent His only begotten Son to heal our heart's brokenness. To bind it together. To bind it in such a way that He is holding it and healing it. What some people need to do is to let the Lord Jesus get close enough to work on their hearts. Because that's His ministry. To let Jesus come and bind and heal your broken heart. One famed British preacher of the Victorian age at the close of his ministry said, If I had ministry to do over, I would preach more to broken hearts. In Psalm 147, verses 1 through 3, it says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. You know, if we just stop there for just a second. The outcasts. He, he builds up Jerusalem and He gathers together the outcasts. The ones who felt like there was no hope for them. The ones who were broken because they, they had come to realize that, you know, they were so far gone. And, and the only thing that they heard was, you know, how will God, how could God ever forgive you? How could God ever love you for the way that you have disobeyed Him? They felt like outcasts. And yet it says here, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. And then it says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Binds up their wounds. In most cases, if not in every case, the Messiah has come to heal the damage that sin brings. And because of that great damage, there exists the need for a great work of redemption. Sin impoverishes the soul. Therefore, Messiah preaches glad tidings to the poor in spirit. Sin breaks the heart. Therefore, Messiah comes to heal and to bind the broken heart with His loving hands. Sin enslaves people. Therefore, Messiah came to set the captives free from their bondage and imprisonment to sin. That was the work of redemption. That's what Jesus did on the cross. 
That's what he accomplished when he said it is finished. That's what he, he sealed when he rose from the dead. Victory over sin, victory over death. And consider as we close this study for now, the very words of Jesus on the Mount of Beatitudes, as He speaks and declares the hallmarks of the kingdom, He says in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Does it ring a bell? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you come to the realization that you have a need for a Savior like Jesus who has come to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, the opening of blind eyes, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which we're still in. And one day, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, joy the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Shall we pray?